Today's scripture is from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Let's hear God's word together. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky, this same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Amen. Thanks be to God. This is his holy word. Well, good morning, folks. How's everybody doing today? I hope well. It is Pentecost Sunday, the birthday of the church, when Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit onto the apostles. Jerusalem was like ground zero for a new spiritual pandemic that spread across the ancient world like a grass fire. That pandemic was the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the, the very Son of God who, who walked this earth, who conquered sin and death, who ascended to heaven, who brought forgiveness of sin, purpose for living, and a vision of God's good kingdom. And on Pentecost, Jesus adds that special sauce. He adds that one more thing, the power for his people to be able to tell that story and then to be all that God wants his children to be. The Holy Spirit would now fully indwell every person who turns to Jesus for salvation. And amazingly, in one generation, the, this gospel virus, it spread throughout the entire Western world, starting in Jerusalem, going as far east as India, as far south and west as Africa, as far north as England. Pentecost was a disruptive moment. A disruptive moment. That's when something significant happens that dramatically changes the course of history or changes the course of a person's life. There's a before and then there's an after and in the middle is this disruptive moment. The disruptive moment is so huge, so important that it marks life as a before and after whatever the event was. Like, like the birth of a child. There's before and after. The invention of the personal computer. 9-11. But you know, Western civilization marks its history by the life of Jesus, B.C. and A.D., before Christ and Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. I know secular academia has sought to change that delineation, but that's just revisionist history for you. The birthday of the church was a disruptive moment. The world was changed forever when Jesus launched the church. The church. Jesus first used that word in Matthew 16, 18 after Simon Peter proclaims his belief in Jesus as the Messiah, the Chosen One. Jesus says to him, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will build 
my church, the church, the ecclesia in the language of ancient Greek. Jesus didn't invent the word, but he did transform it. The ecclesia means the called ones. Originally, it described the call that went out to citizen soldiers to assemble as an army. Ancient Greece was just like dotted with small towns and cities. They didn't have standing armies. They had citizen soldiers who were ready at a moment's notice to come together to defend their homes. Like the uh, Minutemen in our Revolutionary War. You know, when Paul Revere came riding through town in April of 1775, waving his hat in the air about the British, the Minutemen gathered. And they were so called because they were supposed to be ready at any minute to run towards the battle when the call was given. So the American version of the Ecclesia, the citizen soldiers, they marched to fight the British at Lexington and Concord. Well, Jesus gave birth to a new Ecclesia, a new kind of army. Not an army of soldiers, but an army of committed believers. The Ecclesia are people with a twofold call. That twofold mission is summarized by what we remember as the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. The Great Commandment, all about relationships. Jesus said it in Matthew 22:37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. But then he goes on to say, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, right before Jesus was arrested and crucified, he elevated this call to love to an even higher level by these words in John 13, 34. He said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so you also should love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So love, love for God, love for the brothers and sisters in Christ, and love for the people around us in the world. Jesus said, this is the first most defining characteristic of his army, his new ecclesia. And then post-resurrection, Jesus added this call to his army, his ecclesia in Matthew 28. As you go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The call to the ecclesia was to nurture these new healthy followers of Jesus who were to be grounded in the teaching of the apostles, which are collected in the books of the New Testament for us. But there are two sides of the same coin, to love and make disciples. Love and make disciples. That's the call Jesus gave to his ecclesia, his church. And what happened on that first Pentecost was something the world did not expect. That there were people who actually took Jesus' words seriously. People who actually Jesus's, took Jesus' words to love and to make disciples. They took those words seriously. They actually decided to live that way to live the Jesus way. And as the Holy Spirit filled their souls, well, that's what started the gospel pandemic. Pentecost was a disruptive moment. Many people are characterizing our current pandemic as a disruptive moment, something that will change the future forever. There will be a sense of life before the pandemic and life after the pandemic. And those two things will not be the same. This disruptive moment is going to affect the church just as much as it does any other aspect of society. Because, and I, I could be wrong here, but most of the you know, experts seem to think that the coronavirus is not something we're just gonna get through in a couple of months and then we'll go back to our old normal. This is not just a little storm that will pass and then things will go back to the way they were before. I saw an article in the Harvard Business Review that said every business should look at itself as a startup business. 
Every corporation or small business should now think of itself as a startup because the old playbook is not going to work in the future. And if they don't adapt to these new realities, they will go under. They got to set aside the current playbook, the current business model, write a new one because if they don't, it won't be long before they're out of business. And I believe this is true for the future church as well. If our focus is just on getting back to what we used to do, if we don't take a hard look at the ways we need to adapt, if we don't look at this disruptive moment as an opportunity for change, then it will be impossible for us to embrace the future that I believe God has called, uh, has, has for us as his army, his army of lovers of God and people and disciple makers. Our mission should never change. Our methods, our mentality, the way we measure, you know, success as a church, those things must change. And this will be a good thing. I say this with confidence because Jesus is still Lord and his spirit is even now working powerfully in his church and in all our lives as well. God is good and he has a good future for us. So we need to look to the future with creativity, determination, while at the same time, we must make room for our sense of grief and lament. Grief and lament, because in this disruptive moment, pain and loss are inevitable. There will be a sense of grief because we can't go back to the past, and there are things that we loved about the past that may just slip through our grasp. The old comfortable ways, we are going to lose some of those things and that will bring us a measure of grief as we mourn that loss. The reality is that as his church, Jesus called us to a time like this. This is our time to shine for him. He's given us a mission and such a great community of people to serve alongside here at New Providence Presbyterian, our church family. So I'm so proud of our church and how we've responded so far to the pandemic. I'm so grateful to be part of such a great local church. I hope you are too. And we still have the most important resource, the Holy Spirit. So as we look to the future, the main question we need to ask is what changes are coming that we need to prepare for so that we can continue to thrive during the post-COVID-19. I want to quickly outline six things, six shifts where our methods, our mentality, our assumptions may need to change. There's a lot more I could talk about. I've tried to narrow it down to just six, and I can only touch on each one of these briefly. I hope this kind of opens a wider conversation within the church. Your church elders and staff are already very engaged in this kind of conversation. We're very much prayerfully looking at how we can safely and smartly and slowly move to reopen the church building, regather as a church family and you know in stages. But these six things I want to talk about are more general than that and have more to do with, I guess, the atmosphere the church will be moving into in the future. Six things. The first is accelerated change. The coronavirus has not so much created new problems as it has accelerated some of the forces of cultural change that have already been taking place. In other words, the pressures placed on churches during the pandemic, they aren't brand new things, but are increasing or, or crystallizing issues that were already there, accelerating issues that were already at work. The pandemic is forcing churches to finally deal with some critical issues that maybe they've been ignoring. For example, just take the use of the internet to broadcast worship services. Everything is on the internet, right? But most churches have been late to that party. 
Most churches have not really looked at how the internet might be a powerful tool for the gospel. Now we were already positioned pretty well to make this transition to online worship, from worship in a building to uh, worship at home around a computer or phone screen. We were already broadcasting our worship over the internet, on Facebook, on local TV, all the things. But for a lot of churches, this was undiscovered territory and they had to scramble to figure something out. But even if we only made the, the transition, we really only made it because we had to. We hadn't placed as much emphasis on using the internet as a ministry tool uh, that we should have, and I think that has to change. Churches that don't quickly learn how to connect with their congregations digitally are gonna take a big hit during this pandemic. The world of communications has moved to the internet and churches that fail to understand this new reality and really embrace it are going to struggle to survive. The problem already existed, but the pandemic has kind of pointed this out in big, bold letters. And that same idea is true for some of the other things I'm going to mention this morning about church programs, about missions, about church finances. Churches that were growing and adapting before the crisis are far more likely to see that growth accelerate. Churches that were in decline, that were kind of cemented to the past, are also likely to see their decline more rapidly. One of the saddest things that we will see in the next year is the number of small churches that will close their doors because they're just simply not able to adapt to this changing environment. The good news about this first shift is that when times of crisis come, they can also be opportunities where people are open to maybe doing something differently. Church members will be more willing, will actually expect their church leaders to initiate some new changes to bring about a, a better preferred future. And the churches that will thrive will be the ones who sincerely believe that the church's best days are still ahead. And that connects to number two, from analog to digital. Over 90% of churches are now conducting online worships and, and most will find that they need to continue this practice even after the coronavirus has been eradicated. But going digital is going to be bigger than just worship services. A characteristic of churches that will thrive during and after this crisis is that they pursue an effective digital delivery strategy that extends beyond online worship into connection, community, and spiritual formation. In other words, we have to be open to moving much of what we do as a congregation to the internet as a parallel strategy for all our in-person gatherings that we are used to in the past. The best strategies will be those that look beyond simply recreating online what we were offering in person. Meeting online is simply not the same thing as meeting in person. That doesn't make meeting online bad, it's just different and we have to change our expectations of what we can actually do when we meet each other online. I mean nothing replaces a hug, right? We do absolutely need that in-person community. But a lot of what we do can be done in significantly different ways via online meeting platforms. For example, four weeks ago, we launched an online new members class. I wasn't sure anybody would sign up. What happened? We now have 24 people in the class. It's the largest new members class we've had in many years. Turns out the old way of meeting on Sunday mornings just didn't work out for a number of folks who have been part of the church family for a long time but we're never able to commit to a regular Sunday morning class. So the online version is perfect for them. And I really applaud Elder Scott Pluche and Lori Acherito and their team for embracing this new way of connecting with people. It's different, it has some weak spots, but overall it's working. 
Our women's tapestry groups, many of our men's small groups have also embraced online meetings. It's not perfect, but it's working. We'll need to continue to do more of this as we think about how best to create a digital delivery strategy for making disciples. Even when we're able to meet again in person, we're going to need to develop more and more online experiences to encourage people as they grow in Christ. In the same vein, our financial stewardship will increasingly need to be online. I must get five emails a day from companies that provide the tools for online giving, trying to sell us you know, their products. It's a booming business right now. Now, thankfully, we had all those online giving tools already in place prior to the pandemic because we knew that that's how many people already pay most of their bills. And even when we open up the church building again and we can meet in person for worship, one thing we won't be doing is passing a plate for the offering. Nobody's going to want to be touching a plate or a basket that's been touched by a hundred other people in the room. E-giving will become the norm in our financial future, and I would encourage you strongly to go ahead and try it if you haven't already. Just go to our website, thecornernj.com. You'll see the links there, and just give it a try. If you need help, please contact Ellen Smith or Don Goldbach in our office. Number three, from teaching to equipping. The single largest emphasis for most churches is in gathering people each week to worship and teach. While Bible teaching is very important, thriving churches are going to shift their focus to more equipping people with tools and resources they need to engage the Bible, to practice spiritual disciplines, but also to live out God's mission in their lives. Most people who've been around the church for a long time, quite frankly, they don't need any more Bible trivia. More Bible information to stuff into their brains, they don't need it. What they need is to be challenged to use what you already know to how, figure out how to put it into practice, and that means being equipped for ministry. Teaching will become part of an equipping strategy when it inspires clear personal growth along a path of, uh, of a discipleship pathway. I think this emphasis on helping Christians mature along a well-defined discipleship path is going to need to be an essential part of the next phase of the church's life. The challenge for the future will be to imagine how to facilitate experiences of meaning spiritual growth that people that move people from just being spectators to actively taking that next step along a discipleship pathway through both in-person gatherings and also online experiences. Shift four, from gathering to connecting. Gathering and connecting may sound like the same thing, but thriving churches will have to recognize that just effectively uh, gathering people for an event does not in and of itself provide a transformative experience with Christ. The future church will need to shift from focusing on how many people gather each week to celebrating how many people we actually connect with relationally. God designed us to need one another, but just pe putting people in a room together is not the same thing as people actually connecting with each other. Part of this means changing the things we try to measure. For most churches, there are really just three basic things that they are able to measure. Church membership, worship attendance, and financial giving. But those metrics just don't tell the whole story. They don't tell the story about the future church. It's not going to be enough just to get people into the proverbial pew. Thriving churches are shifting their measures of effectiveness, <coughs> excuse me, from counting attendees to focusing on how people are moving along that discipleship path. 
They measure and celebrate each step that a person takes along the discipleship path and the impact of the church ministry in their local mission field. We'll have to find ways to measure connections and the steps of spiritual growth, not just bodies in a building. We're gonna to have to figure out a way to identify a more direct connection between participation and growing disciples as we continue to place high value on relationships and life transformation. Shift five, from global to local. Many churches have invested heavily in supporting missions efforts around the world, so much so that they've missed the opportunities in their own backyard and don't really have any connection to the people right in their own communities. Now we've known this and we've been trying to take some steps to put a greater emphasis on our own mission activities right here at home. The struggle we've had is that sure, we can find good Christian groups to partner with in Newark or Elizabeth or New York City, but that's not really local. Local means Summit, New Providence, Chatham, Madison, Berkeley Heights, Gillette, Warren, Wachung, Madison, you know, our immediate circle where our own people live. And please excuse me if I omitted your town, we love you too. But in all of these fairly prosperous, busy suburban communities, it is much harder to find a niche for local mission. COVID-19 has changed that. The pandemic has exposed a lot of real needs in the lives of people who live right in next door in our own communities. Now we have an exceptional opportunity to reevaluate our investment of time and energy that we're making into local mission. Our Boxes of Hope initiative is doing exactly that, a prime example of what we need to be doing. It's meeting the needs of those who are near our own front door. We've served over 100 families already. We anticipate that number will jump to over 700 families before the end of June. That's a lot of people in need. And I think the Boxes of Hope program will be a great model for us to follow as we pursue other missional outreach opportunities in our own city, within blocks or within miles of the church. We can do that and still ensure our commitment to global ministries. Make sure that's not diluted. It's not an either or, or thing. It's both and. We can do both local and global mission. Shift six, from complexity to simplicity. Complexity is easy. Simplicity is really hard. Planning more and more church activities does not directly correlate to having a healthy church. Simplicity is going to be key for our future. Doing fewer things, but doing them really well. Less programs, but they're more effective. Declining churches often choke on their complexity, especially when it comes to decision-making process. Studies show that the average declining church has 40% more people on their boards or sessions or vestries or committees or administrative groups than thriving churches because it's all about who's in control. Thriving churches are becoming more intentional about their mission and vision, and they're learning to focus on what's important, getting people to work together on serving teams that actually do stuff and then they can disband, rather than these oversight committees that generally do nothing and continue meeting long after they have outlived their usefulness. This is a transition we've also been working hard to accomplish over the years, and I think we've done a pretty good job of it. Moving away from traditional committee structures to serving teams that simply roll up their sleeves and get involved in ministry. We don't have layers and layers of bureaucracy in this church which means that we can move more effectively and more efficiently, be more adaptive in how we approach ministry. Many churches are not this way, and the quarantine situation has really thrown them for a loop. The old ways are just not working anymore. 
one of the things that's best about our new denomination, ECO, is that they are on the forefront of encouraging this kind of structural change within the local church. So the challenge ahead will be for us to imagine what it might look like if we could actually align our resources, our time, our staff, our volunteers, our money, to ensure that we're delivering our mission for Christ consistently and effectively. Well, there are a lot of other things I could talk about, but I am out of time. The main thing to remember is that the Holy Spirit is using our current disruptive moment to call the church to new opportunities for ministry in Jesus' name. And it's up to us to take up the challenge. A.W. Tozer once said, a scared world needs a fearless church. A scared world needs a fearless church. When I first read those words, I thought, wow, that is exactly our challenge. That just hits the nail right on the head. A scared world needs a fearless church. Now Tozer wrote in the 1950s and 60s during the height of the Cold War on, with the Soviet Union, a time when the threat of nuclear war hung over the landscape like a mushroom cloud. People were afraid, people were anxious about the possibility of imminent nuclear war. I can remember doing these disaster drills in elementary school, crouching under your desk or kneeling in the, by your locker in the hallway as though that was gonna save you from a nuclear blast. Some of you baby boomers may remember that too. But the fear was very real. Well, our world has been hit with a new wave of fear and uncertainty and anxiety and all the rest. A scared world needs a fearless church. And the only way to be a fearless church is to be filled with the spirit of Jesus. We need to embrace this disruptive moment and respond to Jesus' call to be his church, to be his army of lovers and disciple makers right now as we follow Christ and create the future church. Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you for Pentecost and how uh, you backed up everything you said with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that same spirit is alive today in us and in our church. And we believe, Lord, that we are called to do the same kind of things as the disciples did, to love and to make disciples. So Lord, challenge us in all of these areas not to be afraid of this disruptive moment, but to embrace the opportunities and the challenges that it'll bring, even though we are sometimes we're struggling through day after day in our self-quarantining, Lord. Help us to embrace this new future and to see your good kingdom at work in the midst of it. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.